Well, it, it is sad how blind people are. We are all born with a blindness that eyeglasses can't fix because the real issue is true vision and proper perception. How is it that we as people have come to accept a culture obsessed with death and are not speaking out against it? Now, with many abortions, and let's call it what it is, the killing of unborn babies, as we have here in the United States, there are far more mandated abortions taking place that are ordered by the government of China. They are saying couples over there can only have one child, and after that they must abort all pregnancies. And what's even kind of sad about this and unsettling is so many couples, if they can only have one child, they want a boy. So if they do genetic testing and the child turns out to be a girl, a female, then they just go ahead and abort or kill her. It's, it's not just happening in, in, in our country. And now even in our country, we're starting to allow the killing of frail elderly people. I just heard this morning that with this pandemic and not being able to treat really elderly people, they're just kind of casting them aside. And, um, you know, beyond that, um, we're having several states, you're probably aware of this, debating this issue of making assisted suicides legal, and we have one state where that is allowed in that state, okay? Those are one side of issues. Another one that's being pushed aside, but I would see it in the paper all the time last year, is this rising heroin addiction epidemic. And I remember last year, some, I think of Worcester County or Massachusetts, there were like 400 heroin deaths. There's death all around us, and this is no longer their problem. I would, I would feel pretty safe in saying every one of us knows someone who is addicted to this awful drug. And then, uh, how many times do we read in an obituary, and I kind of glance through them every day, died unexpectedly at home. Now, you know, that this, this could be like um, a heart attack or, or an overdose, but too often. It's one of the biggest tragedies in American life today. It, it's a suicide. I can't imagine any other cause of death that is more heartbreaking to so many people. And again, with a math degree and being a geek in this manner, the explosion in the rate of suicides just in the 20 years of this century has been absolutely amazing. Staggering, in fact. Well, with all of this, and I haven't even talked about the increased sexual immorality and the pain of that, we would expect that there would be a number of people who would be moved to action, to do something to give 
others hope, help, support, and comfort. But where is this? It seems instead people are getting addicted to social media. Now, this is not horrible in and of itself, but I can't tell you how many times I've seen kind of trivial pictures or sayings posted there. I mean, I love it when my cousin posts birthday parties when the 10 of us were like eight years old. That's kind of okay. But it's not okay if we allow this to divert us and be a way to avoid the, the, the needs and address the messiness of our lives. And then worse than this is the divisive rhetoric that is out there. And, and you could get obsessed with this, and it would be painful, but people are misrepresenting and blaming other people who do not agree with them. And as a result, there's very little positive happening in our world. People would rather escape or fight each other when they should be doing the very hard work of putting sacrificial love into action in order to solve the problems of our culture of death. Now, this week, as I was thinking about all this and putting it together, This willful choice to be blind reminds me, reminds me, um, well, let me back up. We're being blind to the needs of people. All people need hope in life. They're all around us, people who need the Lord, as we would say. And this reminded me of what Bono sang on U2's second album. No one is blinder than he who will not see. Why is it we're not seeing and responding to all that is going on here? So at a time like this, we can thank God for the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to a church of people in Corinth who were becoming holy as Jesus is holy. And what's ironic about all of this is they were living in one of the most decadent cities of the Roman Empire. But he laid out two ways of life. You probably already have heard it. There is light and darkness, righteousness and lawlessness. These former ways of light and righteousness are the ways of the Messiah, whereas the latter ways are of worthless wickedness personified and provoked by the devil. And then Paul also reminds these believers of the promises of the Lord to live with his people on the condition that they come out of darkness, lawlessness, and idolatry. And this will result in adoption, adoption as uh, his children. As children of the Lord Almighty, no less. And then he will empower them to cleanse themselves from all defilement as they perfect holiness in the fear of God 
And all this, let's remind ourselves, is only for those people who are continually living by the faith of the fear of God and are together becoming God's temple. And if we are God's temple, we will do God's work. Those with obedient faith are purified from their idolatry. And now we're ready to examine the details of this passage, which is full of allusions to scripture, especially scripture given to Moses and the prophets. So the first thing we're told, the first big idea is the community of believers who are being made like Christ must not be joined intimately with unbelievers but to be made separate unto the Lord first. So we're told the temple of God, this is believers in a church, must not be differently yoked to unbelievers and idols. Okay, now this word differently yoked, which applies to the church of believers, all believers in Jesus Christ, is heterozygous, which literally means a different yoke, and it was used of farm workers. Now, again, I, I have a weird mind, but just try to picture this, an oxen side by side with a pig. It just doesn't work. And what God is saying here is he's extending this concept to human beings. Believers must never be teamed up with unbelievers. Now, I'm going to add something in here to clarify it. Believers should be more than willing to associate with and to interact with and to love all people, believers and unbelievers, just as God loved us before we knew him. However, here's the big warning and what this command is all about. Deep intimacy is not possible, and it would be unwise for a believer to be a full business partner with an unbeliever. And every bit as much so when it comes to the covenant of marriage. A believer should not enter into a covenant love relationship with an unbeliever. That's what's really being talked about here. And then he expands on this command with a series of five rhetorical questions. He says, because what with having, meaning what is in common between righteousness and lawlessness, or going deeper, what fellowship, what commonality is there between light and darkness? What harmony symphony, which in English means same sound. How can you have the same sound between Christ and Belial? Okay, Belial. Uh, you need a good Bible dictionary. Uh, if you're not sure what Belial means, it was a Hebrew word for um, both, uh, well, worthless wickedness. Let's put it that way. It was a worthless person. It was a wicked person. And over the centuries, it became a proper name for the devil. What does Jesus have in harmony with the devil? Or what part, portion, or share to a believer with an unbeliever? And then finally, the fifth one, what agreement? How can they stand together, the temple of God, with idols? 
So, uh, again, we're coming across idolatry in our Lenten series. Remember the first week, we were told the narration after 40 years in the wilderness, the people of Israel had come up on the east side of the Jordan River. They were about to cross over the river. They were in the land of Moab. And what were they doing in the land of Moab? They were worshiping the false god of thunder and rain by the name of Baal. Now, there's fewer physical idols in our culture today, but they are only physical representations of the most dangerous idol. And Debbie, I think I've talked to you a little bit about this. It really still bothers me that in the morning when I'm praying and confessing to God, the worst idol is self-centeredness and pride. And I think we all have some of that in us, and I have to keep trying to slay it every single day. We're all guilty to some extent of idolatry. So take these five questions to answer. What is the obvious answer? They have nothing whatsoever in common. Lawlessness, darkness, unbelief, and idolatry are all clearly offensive to God. And these should be offensive to people with eyes to really see and ears to really hear. Okay, whereas righteousness, light, um, faith, fellowship in Christ, these please God, and they really do benefit other people, even people who don't know God yet. But in the middle, we've only talked about four. The third rhetorical question, most importantly, ask the big question. Have we surrendered to Christ to be fully in him, that's Christ, or are we living for ourselves mere lackeys of the devil? And then he goes on and says, all believers are the temple of the living God, fulfilling what God spoke through Moses and the prophets. Therefore, you all must come out of idolatry. He says, because we are the temple of the living God. You may remember that in his first letter to this church, Paul told them that together they were the temple of the living God. And we must guard ourselves. I've seen books that are just mistitled. They, they've not gone back to the original language and they don't understand the deliberate choice of the King James translators. This is a plural you. Thee, thou, all that is singular. There's no such thing as one individual believer being the temple of God. I hate to burst your balloon if you really believe that. We together are the temple of God. And then um, just as God has said, and now catch this, Paul quotes four covenant promises of God. First, I will dwell with them, with my people, I will walk among them, my people. Thirdly, I will be their God. Fourthly, they will be my people. Now, I didn't have a cross-reference Bible. I didn't come up with this on my own. 
but some commentaries pointed out something to me I pass on to you. Yahweh told the Israelites this, I will put my dwelling place among you all and also walk among you all and be your God and you will be my people. Leviticus 26 through Moses and Ezekiel 37. Now this word dwelling place is mishkan. It's a noun. It comes from the verb shakan, meaning to dwell. So the original tabernacle in the temple were dwelling places where God was and people could be in communion with him and be his people. And now we together as God's people are that dwelling place where he dwells among us. So Paul goes on under the inspiration and says, Therefore come out from the midst of them, the unbelieving idolaters, and be separated. Now, even after 70 years of exile in Babylon, many Israelites still wanted to worship idols rather than the true God. And Adonai Yahweh spoke through Ezekiel and said, I will gather you up out of the nations where you have been. I will purge you all. I will accept you all. I will not deal with you as you deserve. That's Ezekiel 20. What is this? Grace. The Old Testament God is fully gracious. Even after 70 years of discipline, his people are still acting out, and yet he gives them this amazing promise of what he's going to do for them. And he says, you must not touch any uncleanness, and I will welcome you. I'll receive you. Now, before God spoke about his suffering servant, Yahweh commanded his people through Isaiah to depart from Assyria, touch no unclean thing. Why? Because he would comfort them and fill them with joy. Isaiah 52. So to sum up this first half of the passage, God's word is eternally true. It's perfect and firmly established And we should seek him in his word, delight in his word, and we'll have a full life. That's also from Psalm 119. Now, what was true for the Israelites before Jesus came to earth to fulfill scripture? And what was true for these churches in Corinth is also true for us. We must never compromise our faithful obedience to God with any hint of idolatry. And this is especially true, I'm speaking to myself first, of the idolatry of self-centeredness and pride. But if we do this, we also have God's wonderful covenant promise, which Paul stated so clearly, those who will not defile themselves by idols, will be welcomed by God. And I already gave you scriptures before the church age that told about this. Second big part, and here we come. There are seven promises in this passage. We've had four already. The Lord Almighty promises to be the father to those who obey so that together they might be cleansed and go on to full holiness. 
So we're told the Lord Almighty promises this father-child relationship. You'll be my sons and daughters. Let's hearken back to David. Remember when David was told he couldn't build the temple, and then Nathan had to come and give him that bad news. His personal private uh, prophet, Nathan, private prophet, said, this is what Yahweh says. Yahweh will be the father to one of your descendants, David, the one who will be the eternal king, Messiah, and his kingdom will never end. And then uh, Paul goes on to say in this passage, you all shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now this is kind of beautiful. Jeremiah, who prophesied before the exile, He said, even though Ephraim, which was in Samaria and full of idolatry, has been severely disciplined for their idolatry because of of the, um, the, the scattering of these 12 tribes by Assyria, even before Jeremiah was born, Yahweh said he still had an everlasting love for Ephraim, to draw him with loving kindness and to restore his inheritance in the promised land because Yahweh says, I am his father and Ephraim is still my firstborn son, meaning having privileges. Now some 150 years before Jeremiah, Yahweh had also said through Isaiah that he would bring back his sons and daughters from the ends of the earth and even those with blind eyes. Again, that's hope for us in our current cultural blindness. Now, the Lord Almighty, this name is significant. It occurs dozens of times in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, it occurs nine more times, all in Revelation, all applying to Jesus. I've given you five in the outline, and one of my favorite Part of Handel's Messiah is on the back of your bulletin, so you can look at it later. And then the last word, so beloved, having these promises, let us be fully cleansed. I capitalize beloved because it's a term of endearment for those who are in Jesus Christ. And he says, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement in our flesh and in our spirit. Well, what does defile mean? We have a sense of it, but it's literally to be polluted in our hearts. And this is what idols do to people created in God's image. And this defilement can be of the whole person, both our physical body and our inner thoughts, feelings, and desires. But here's a beautiful thing. It happened earlier, and let me draw it to our attention specifically now. This church-planting apostle Paul, called St. Paul, he joins himself with the members of the churches of Corinth in this exhortation. I'm one with you. I'm struggling with the same things. I want to follow Jesus the right way. Be purified from this defilement of idolatry. And those with obedient faith are purified from idolatry. And then finally, he says, be always, be continually being fully complete. 
perfected in holiness in the fear of God. Let me say something about fear of God. I'm just going to give you a little preview right now. When I was at seminary, the president of the seminary preached every Wednesday. He was on campus. He loved the Hebrew scriptures. He was taking postdoctoral Hebrew with Orthodox rabbis in Boston. And he said, the fear of God means faith. So let me, with that background, go on to say, there are many blessings from Yahweh for those who fear him, including deliverance from trouble and redemption. See Psalm 34. And remember Solomon's last book in scripture is Ecclesiastes. And how does he sum up this cynical book? I'll give you a paraphrase. In the last two verses, he says, all of life is summed up by two things, fearing God and keeping his commandments. Having faith in an awesome God allows us to obey what he commanded. And of course, Abraham is the father of all the faithful. Paul wrote that to the churches in Rome. And Abraham showed his fear of God when he offered his only son to God in obedient faith. And don't miss that cross-reference in Hebrews. It makes sense of the whole thing. Why would Abraham ever do this? Obey God's crazy command to kill the son of promise. Hebrews tells us he believed against all his brain told him that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he got uh, Isaac back from the dead. I'm so glad Hebrews gives us that insight. So... um, Why do, I'm sorry, okay, so Abraham did this, and here's what it is. This fear of God, this faithful fear of God, it is the basis for how we can obey, okay? Why do we obey? Why would anybody obey God's impossible commands? Because we know through Christ we have been adopted by the awesome, all-powerful and holy God who showed his love for us in Christ. So the bottom line of all of this is if we know the fear of God and we know his word, and he's commanded us in that word to love him exclusively with all we are, then we must not put anything or anyone, especially ourselves, above him. When we add to this the words of Jesus, that if we love him, we will obey or keep his commands and his words, we must never compromise our relationship with God by idolatry. So let us together show our obedient faith in God by purifying ourselves from all idols, because those with obedient faith are being enabled and empowered by God to be purified from idolatry. 
So four commands are given in this passage to the church of believers in Jesus Christ who are being made holy as he is holy. That's what it means to be sanctified. Three of these commands come from prophets. All of them are supported by seven promises of God given through Moses and the prophets. And all this is the basis for this exhortation to God's people. Together they must come out of darkness, of disobedience and idolatry, because as God's adopted children, they, we, are called to cleanse ourselves of all defilement while being perfected in holiness out of fear of God. The basis of faith is fear of God, and that will lead us to obedience. And with obedient faith, we can and will be purified from idols. So, in light of the seven promises in this passage, and the panic that so many are experiencing over this virus, let us close our worship singing, Standing on the Promises of God.